so what does it mean for me to be human and African and in the world? And that undergirds uh, the quest that becomes uh, uh, the story. This is My African Reading List, a podcast from the House of Literature, where invited guests present their recommendations and must-reads from the African continent and diaspora. This reading list comes from Kenyan author and playwright Yvonne Ovo. She sat down with Nusiswelise Bakwa to talk about writing and reading. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> uh, my name is Yvonne Aviambo Owar, uh, born in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, what do I do? I wander through the world, and as I wander through the world, I take notes. Does the answer change dependent on the context? All the time. And mm. that's that's the thing that's both so mysterious and, and fascinating and frustrating. Um, just when, uh, you know, you're thinking, I think, oh, I'm getting so close to the, you know, the feeling, the answer, the, uh, you know, the intimate ah moment. Um, it, it's a bit like tantalus, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> it's just dangling just out of sight. Mm. Yeah, but I think that makes the quest both um, exciting and meaningful. What do you like to read on this quest? Everything. Uh, <laughs> I read everything. Um, my hands always reach out for anything that has been published, even if it's in the language that I don't understand. Um, and uh, I, I, I learned from... Uh, a great man of the land, also how to read the land. Uh, so I, I, I look at the land. I look at the book of landscape as well all the time. Um, and I uh, eavesdrop. <laughs> That's the other thing. I eavesdrop and, and read in between the lines of people's conversations. And again, even conversations I do not necessarily understand. Do you have a favorite genre? No. No. <laughs> Um, I'm a bit like a raven. Everything that glistens and, and <laughs> proposes uh, uh, an, an answer uh, or a riddle, I will pick up. So, not not really. Do you think it's the inquisitiveness or the comfortability of not finding answers that is the most important quality a writer should have? I don't know about other writers, but I wonder. I would say it's the hunger. Mm. Um, it's almost an addiction, a quest for a, a, a craving for a, a feeling and a sensation that you don't quite know, but it's there and it drives you and it keeps you uh, restless and always searching. Uh, I, I think that that's that's what serves me rather than the others. I, I, I know if I reach the place of contentment and, and stillness, I'd probably be up some of, of um, maybe one of Norway's exquisite mountains contemplating the skies forever um, in stillness. <laughs> yeah. I think this is such a strange quality of the artist and the writer is that one has to be so intrinsically comfortable with not knowing and hungry to know more, which I think is the thing that many people just find maybe... <laughs> discomforting yeah yes yeah. yes yeah. <laughs> but I think you're right I think you're right yes tell me more about the landscapes Yvonne how does nature impact your write your writing hmm. I wouldn't be writing if 
uh, landscapes did not exist, uh, maybe more vulnerable to my being as a creature of nature. I do not consider myself apart from nature. Um, I'm a part of it. And uh, I think I think that's always been, I guess, a feature of my being. Um, I assumed everybody felt that way. You know, uh, yeah, my, uh, my, my email handle is flame tree, but, uh, Sounds religious, flame tree. There is a Kenyan tree called the flame tree. That uh-huh. is the most, the flamboyant tree is the most, uh, it's, uh, it's also one of my childhood memories driving down to, uh, the Western part of Kenya and going through a place called the Nandi Hills and, and the flame trees, and literally they're, they're these gorgeous, gorgeous giant trees and the flowers were out and they're bright red crimson flowers. And I remember kind of you know, kind of sighing to my father or shouting to him, says, the trees are on fire. And I remember mm. him telling me, oh, those are called flame trees. And so for a long time that the line between the, that tree and who I was was blurred. I, I, I seriously, I maybe it's the child of the imagination. There were times I thought I was a, I was a flame tree. <laughs> so no, so nature has always been um, both soccer comfort and teacher for me. And maybe that's why, um, even as an uh, you know, even as a an artist in process, all, all my art, all my work, all my stories start with landscape. The Norwegian landscape is quite or can be at times quite harsh. I've always wondered about that because I think Norwegians think that walking in the mountains is a very typically Norwegian thing, but I mean... They need to come to Kenya. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I will take them on a 14-week exactly. walk, uh, uh, you know, uh, from, no, they need to come to Kenya. Yeah. No, seriously, uh, yeah. among, the, among our many, many, and maybe that's the privilege of being East African, mm-hmm. uh, we have the privilege of, of nomadic nations. And those who those who travel not just uh, not just uh, not just through mountains, but they travel with their homes uh, on the backs of camels and and travel with their livestock uh, for miles and miles and miles uh, on end, and it's no big deal really. Mm. Uh, they forget that this is the this is the country. Ours, East Africa, is the country that gave the word the world the word um, safari. Mm. Um, uh, it's an ethos and philosophy of journeying of being in journey, the idea that the destination is actually the journey itself. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) Would you say then, if this is the East African ethos, that uh, um, the journeying that you do in your writing is writing in an East African energy? Gosh, I hadn't thought of it that way. You're right. Um, uh, my nomad, the blood of my nomadic ancestors then is absolutely, no, I hadn't thought of it that way. So no, I'm not an aberration. I am living according to my uh, ancestral ethos. Thank you for that. <laughs> wow. You're welcome. I will hold on to that. Yes. No, that explains it then. It, it's not restlessness. It is, um, it is, it is DNA. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, are there writers that you find write particularly well about Kenyan East African landscapes and nature? There are very few people who enter into the East African or Kenyan landscape and are not impacted or moved or transfigured in some way. 
And there are lots of those who write. I mean, you cannot pick up a National Geographic or any of the nature uh, uh, literature that does not make references to East African landscapes, for example. But my challenge and my problem with some of that, some of those texts is that it, it always displaces and removes the African person. Um, that's one. And secondly, it's always about um, the how transformed this person is, becomes in the particular landscape. So the landscape becomes merely a backdrop uh, for someone's ego trip. And the landscape uh, merely serves as a, 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 you know, either an enforcer or a motivator uh, for some great dramatic internal change. And, and, I, that, and that's something, and I point that out because it's something I also need to be aware of, um, uh, impacted myself by the, uh, the, the, you know, recently the winter landscape, uh, the Bergen, Bergen to Oslo, you know, train trip and the winter epiphany um, to allow myself, as C.S. Lewis says, uh, when he speaks about art, to allow myself to surrender Mm, to that experience um, as, 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 as a creature also of nature, um, even if that nature is very alien to my own experience so far, and to allow that nature to speak, to dialogue, to, to direct, um, rather than uh, force my opinions and assumptions and, and aesthetics upon it. So um, I, I think that there's a longing for, I, I long to read that kind of, uh, landscape literature. I hope to be that kind of landscape literature teller as well. Uh, but yeah, so I've found references and gleamings of the kind of landscape writing that would make uh, a lot of sense. And you will find some amazing, uh, uh, you know, descriptions, East African descriptions. You can't miss it. It's it's almost a trope, isn't it? Uh, uh, you know, whether it's in National Geographic or anything, you'll find it. And all sorts of travel literature around East Africa, Lonely Planet is particularly notorious. But the kind of landscape writing that people uh, uh, that the Celts particularly have, uh, writers like John O'Donoghue, um, uh, who are the other ones? Some of these are Richard McFarlane, you see? That landscape writing, that landscape where landscape itself, uh, um, you know, offers, pours out this wisdom uh, and the sense of meaning that the people embedded in the landscape have provided uh, through years and years of encountering, that's still missing in East Africa. It sounds like a kind of... Uh that there is a spiritualism lacking in writing about landscapes. No, this reverence, this understanding of not having the landscape serve you, but you somehow being in reverence of this landscape. You know, and I... I, I but, you know, I think having said that, I, re I think suddenly in my own spirit I realised, oh, then we there's a great opportunity for us to do it. Mm. Uh, there's such a great chance uh, for us to do it because it's right there. This podcast is called My African Reading List. Uh -huh. And I must ask you, which writers do you want to talk about for this African Reading List? Let me gesture to the new generation. Um, mm, 
there are so many incredible um, souls emerging in the in the literary landscape of the continent and of the continent that's located in other parts of the world. Um, and uh, I know I may sound very parochial, but I will speak of uh, a couple, mostly Kenyan, um, that I've, I'm most acquainted with and wh whose works I have had the privilege of looking at uh, first. And, and, and these, these are names, mark my words, these are names that in a couple of years you, you'll be able to say, oh, we heard about them first. They will hit the stratospheres. I'm so proud of them. Mm. Um, in no order of, of, of importance. They're all equally important. I will start with Idzalu Humio. Uh, if you can find her work on Jalada, um, IDZA, -I it's just the way she writes. Oh my goodness, that. The way she writes. I think she's a lawyer who ended up doing advertising. So she's this kind of flexible human being who travels, uh, but her words and her works are just something else. She just has this incredible way. Idza and of course Okurio Dwar, whose book has just come out. Um, and she will be the one of those icons of magic. Real I don't want to there must be another way of saying magical realism. <laughs> um, but yes, Okurio Dwar. And of why do you, why do you want another way of saying magical realism? There needs to be. It's not quite. It doesn't quite. It, it doesn't quite hit that thing that I want. To, the thing that she has done. Mm. The thing that she has done with her with words, and and worlds. Yes. Um, I don't want anyone to think Gabriel García Márquez <laughs> when they think of Queer even though they're incredible resonances. Um, uh, there is, of course, the the twin forces of Troy Onyango and his Lolway Journal and Remy Ngamije and his Duk uh, Journal. And, uh, and and within those worlds, within those journals, they're incredible. They're worlds of, of of writers, of names that uh, will will lift your spirit, uh, of poets, and 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 in a, in an interesting way, they are those. They are the, I'll call them the in between us, the ones who are doing this transmedia, multi-platform thing, uh, rooted and based. Uh, centered on story, um, I imagine they're going to be uh, perhaps new forms of encountering story. And and to that goal, I want to mention uh, Kevo Abra or Kevin Abraham, um, whose work is mostly, uh, you know, dramatically um, visual. Mm, uh, to that goal, I want to mention Chepchumba, who, who also runs a platform called um, uh, Digital Art Africa. Um, or African digital art. And, and when you go into her platform, you're going to, it becomes another rabbit hole. You're going to run on into all these incredible names and peoples. Um, other, other, other writers coming up are uh, Dennis Muga, also a financial econom economist who once I was doing, I was doing a, one of those very rare, you know, writer things in Nairobi, and uh, you had all these eager young people who were there to listen about, you know, uh, about the world of writing. And I said something. I said, um, if there's nothing else in the world and that you'd rather do, 
if you don't mind that, sometimes you will be walking in the streets of Nairobi and your best friend or your former, your former enemy is going to drive past you in a flash car mm. uh, while you only have bus fare in your pocket. And if you know you're going, you can live through that because all you'd rather do is write, then, 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 then come, come, come and talk to me. Mm. Otherwise, there's nothing glamorous about the, the writing process. And if fame comes, it's only by chance and only by strange luck. But do it because there's nothing else in life that you'd rather do. So that's what I did, I said. And then... Uh, and this then young... half of the crowd left. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and those who came talked about that other thing, and there's this young man who's just standing on the side, you know, slender and, and, you know, standing on the edge. And then he came over and with this longing, you know, the kind of longing that pours out his heart. He says, Madam, there's nothing else in life that I would rather do. Chills. Yes. Mm. There's nothing else in life that I would rather do. I said, okay. All right. Okay, fine. Because he also comes from a, you know, a prestigious enough family and there are all these expectations of who he should be. And he's one of those top students who scores highly in everything. So and has a, you know, a proper trajectory in, in the world of finance. He's one of those who could have been Africa's leading hedge fund you know, owners or managers. So, so of course then, yes, that's fine. I said, okay, with that kind of faith, and I said, I'll hold your hand. <laughs> I said, so his name is Dennis Moga, um, and he's now pursuing his uh, writing dream. He, he went off on a scholarship to England. Watch that space, really watch that space. Um, there's an incredible young woman called Stephanie Wanga. Um, she'll probably be doing a lot of kind of the historical fiction um, and searching in the in-between spaces. Um, they is um, one of a new generation. They're not quite, yeah, I think they're bolder, newer, they're a bolder generation of uh, Kenyans of Asian heritage who are asserting very boldly and uncompromisingly um, their Kenyan and African identities. And what I love about them is that they're confusing the notion of who is an African and they're defiant about it. And they will take anybody on who dares to deny their Africanity. So people like Aliyah Kassam is, you know, um, one, of, one of the dreams of that particular, uh, you know, one of the leaders of that particular vanguard. Um, I think that kind of covers quite a few. Oh, yeah. uh, of course, I, I mustn't forget the poets. Um, and, uh, and the children's writer, Gloria Mwanige, um, and, and Kwame Nyong'o, uh, who's a great animator but, and who has been absolutely dedicated to uh, children's uh, writing, um, using landscape, you know. Uh, but again, uh, there's been a lack of, he's one of the older generation, but there's been a lack of prominence around that kind of space, yes. And when you mention poets... Um could you tell me a bit about Haji Gora Haji? Wow. Um, my old man, my old man of the sea, literally. He died last year. Mm, he was one of those uh, 
mm, you know when I was one of one of my one of my own griefs by an end one of my great great griefs is that we especially within the African space um there are all these living libraries that uh, we do not pay attention to until they're gone Haji Haji was one of those he embodied the ocean he knew the Swahili seas that we've come to call the Indian Oceans, uh, its histories, its moods, its nature, its character. He created and had its stories. And and they were deep, deep, deep within him because at one time he was a fisherman. He's been a boatman. He's been a member of the guild of, there's a special guild of uh, boat captains. Um, uh, he has built boats. He has, uh, he traversed with boats in a caravan. Uh, he knew the pathways of the ocean that only those who are embedded in the seas, they're not official pathways at all. And uh, the, the official ship, ship maritime, <laughs> groups of the world would frown upon the, those those ancient pathways, ocean ways that they knew. Uh, he could he could narrate pathways from, uh, um, uh, let's say, from Zanzibar, Unguja, to Yemen. I recite it as poetry, line by line by line. You you could travel with him uh, across the ocean just with his words. He was from uh, one of the lesser-known islands of Zanzibar called Tumbatu, um, whose own culture is absolutely incredible and old. Uh, they were the hosts of uh, uh, Persians who were running away from persecution. So within Tumbatu, you find the remnants of um, uh, old Persia. Uh, you know, Zoroastrianism, for example, uh, people do not realize the extent to which the Zoroastrianism was embedded also in the, in, in the spaces of Zanzibar and, and, and also along the East African coast. And again, he had the knowledge and the histories of that. And I think the only regret I do have is, no, it's not only, only regret, I profoundly regret um, that we have not given enough um, resources and attention to at least recording these um, histories that are in the minds, imagination and blood of, of people like uh, the late Haji Gora Haji. Haji Gora Haji then became uh, the kind of minstrel and, and poet laureate. He would walk into this scene, walk, or he'd walk into a scene like this, and within six minutes or five minutes would have a poem, Swahili style, uh, Utendi. I mean, there are at least minimum count, there are at least eight different Swahili poetry forms. He was probably, he was a master of all of them, of most of them, actually. Um, so you have this insightful philosopher, uh, oceanic. Um, so when I was, I interviewed him for the Dragonfly Sea and out of a, just purely out of pure mischief. And he was a very naughty, naughty man. Uh, out of pure mischief, he gave me 70 different names for crabs. <laughs> 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 just to show that yeah and but he's the point he was making is that anyone who says that they know the ocean is a liar you cannot know the ocean uh, because the moment you think you know the ocean the ocean changes its face on you and he had this way he, he had this incredible way of speaking the ocean i really uh, it breaks my heart um uh so and he was the of an official poet laureate of Tanzania, uh, with all its politics, especially its kind of Tanganyika Zanzibar politics, 
um, that kind of plays out. Um, and he had this uh, mischievous, sub he was a subversive man in that uh, he had he would he would be asked to come and recite or hail the Tanzanian government in these kind of poetic forms that he had. And he would do so brilliantly, brilliantly to great applause. And everybody would go home and wake up with the realization after they looked at, after they, you know, they had time to recall the, the, the poem and realize they had been grievously insulted. <laughs> so, like I said, I did this lyrical, most lyrical ways. Um, and uh, he's. Uh, yeah, his works are, uh, you, you cannot miss his. If you look up Haji Gorahaji, you'll mm. run into his works quite extensively, yes. How did you first encounter him or his poetry? I first encountered Haji Gorahaji when he walked into my office when I was the executive director of the Zanzibar Film Festival. And I was this Nairobi creature, uh, uh, who had landed in the middle of Zanzibar uh, in a very kind of corporate sense. I was, you know, coming in here to it corporatize. I came in a very strong corporate mentality, turn around this organization. We had no money, find a way to raise funds and launch our, our, our festival. And this beauty walks in, carrying his um, papyrus basket, reed basket. And... Um, takes a chair and I was, so I'm sitting on this end takes a chair across my desk and uh, he plunks himself and his basket down and he starts to speak to me in this exquisite kitumbadu and he, part of the things about Haji Gorahaji um, please understand that Kiswahili has many um, forms, many dialects many kind, and place based um, 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 variations so when you're in Zanzibar, what people say, Swahili Sanifu, the clear Swahili or Haiki Swahili, is supposed to be Kiunguja. Although other places, Pate, Mombasa, and all these other places will, will dispute that. And he would then come and speak Kitumbatu, which even the Kiunguja, the Unguja people do not necessarily, because they're very, they're variations. Yeah. But he, and that was Haji Gorahaji's way of being, um, Haji Gorahaji. <laughs> he came to speak to me and he came to be speaking in Kitumbatu. Mm. Now, one of the rivalries you'll, you'll hear about is, you know, Kenya and Tanzania, Kiswahili. Uh, people say, uh, it, you know, Kiswahili is born in Tanzania, which is untrue, it was born in the East African coast. Uh, but it, it came to, it, it, it became unconscious in Nairobi. So I... <laughs> <laughs> So that, that, that is the extent of my Kiswahili. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, mm. uh, they say it died, it died in the Congo. Now to push it further. <laughs> so mm. uh, so uh, I'm Nairobi and, uh, uh, you know, brought up a certain way. So, and our interaction with Kiswahili is a little constrained. And this person is speaking, speaking this uh, incredible uh, 
it's flowery, floral and beautiful. I understand it, but I cannot for the life of me even reply. And I remember just staring at him with this kind of... <laughs> but then he laughs and laughs and laughs. And we rarely understood one another, but we loved one another. You know how you just mean, mm. this is a family I'm going to love anyway. Mm. Absolutely love. And he became one of my great mentors in imagining um, the, the festival. And he grounded me in that. Um, I it's, it took, I left the corporate mentality and I understood that what we were actually doing was, um, um, uh, what do you call it, an, an, a salvaging the histories of the in-between. It was a festival of what you call the Dao countries. So countries that are bounded and linked to them uh, by our seas. And it, it, it became this kind of space of understanding that, um, you know, I, I know it might sound dumb, but I, had, I didn't know how much I'd restricted my own African identity to the land, to the geography of, 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 of hard land, of, of soil, of the terrestrial. He opened, he was, the, he was the guardian that opened the gateway to understand that part of my African identity is maritime. I, I'm also oceanic. Um, so he became that for me. And ultimately, in the end, you know, years later, I left when I came back, uh, when, the, when I was going to write the book Dragonfly Sea, he was the first person I came to um, because I wanted to hear the ocean, the story of the ocean um, from one whose skin looked like mine, um, but from one who knows the ocean from the inside out. The stories of the in-between. Can you tell us more about that? What mm -hmm. is that? You know, when the uh, history of uh, Africa was rewritten, uh, and unfortunately the, the diminished history is what ends up traveling the world um, in the last uh, 100 years, mm, what was uh, buried beneath uh, uh, rewritten histories, um, even if it is papered over, I say does not die. It falls into the cracks. So I think of myself also as a, a ruin hunter. I go into the ruins of the in-between spaces um, to uncover um, those uh, resonances. So you talked a little bit about the maritime histories, uh, uh, the fluidities of African identities. Uh, the fact that East Africa was the centre of global cosmopolitanism uh, during the worlds of the Indian Ocean. Uh, it was the stop of a point for everybody, uh, the Chinese, the, uh, uh, the Arabs, the Persians, the Indians. Um, and, 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 the, uh, and the site, I mean, it was the center of boat building for the entire oceanic world, right? Uh, Pate Island, for example. Um, so now, now, unless I tell you this and unless you look for it, you're not going to know this. Hmm. And unfortunately, then you have a generation of African who always who grow up thinking that um, their history begins when the Europeans arrive um, without understanding that the amputation was very, very deliberate. Remember the British at that time, uh, and there was a competition for powers as there is now again of who owns the Indian Ocean and the idea of, uh, of power uh, was vested in who controls the seas. The British went into shock, as did the later Portuguese, when they realized that the center, uh, one of the centers of, and it was a web, it was not necessarily about control, it was about uh, 
you, you know, a kind of mutuality um, was East African. It did not fit into the rhetoric and the narrative of the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason at that time that had located Africans at the bottom. So, of course, it became necessary to amputate the African, especially the 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 the, the dark African, um, from access to the seas because. What does it mean if you have access to the seas? It means you have the knowledge to build boats. You have an awareness of technology. You can navigate. Uh, you are a, you, uh, you have uh, you you have moved and traversed worlds that the Europeans were only just discovering right now. Mm, the when you the histories of, uh, for example, an Admiral Fremantle, uh, the British um, uh, um, um, uh, admiral, uh, bombarding a, 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 a settlement, uh, one of the uh, port cities called Witu. It's it's just dust right now. So when when you talk about the histories of in between, Witu is symbolic of what I mean. Witu was the center of not just scholarship. Um, it was it it held the archives of of the seas. When Fremantle went in to bombard Witu, having sealed in the intelligentsia as well, it was a very deliberate act of burning down any record of particularly African agency of the waters, which is a very deliberate act, so that another history would be written on top, which, of course, privileged the British or the Portuguese. And if you couldn't privilege the British or the Portuguese, you privileged the Arab, anything but the African, right? And, and if you couldn't privilege the Arab, you said it was the Phoenicians or the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> That's so... You understand? So... Um, that's uh yeah i guess that's so that becomes um, so that that becomes the place so a, symbolic we too is the symbol of those in between spaces that i go to and, and when you go to we too all you'll see is dust is that why your novel is called dust uh, no no that was something else entirely but when you go to mm. a place called we too, you see dust and and but then you understand that there's a deep and profound history um, uh, that is that's buried right there. So, I think my role, part of my role, is as witness to the ancestors, witness to the past, and to say we is not just dust. This is what happened here, and this is what it means, especially for um, for 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 the African and for the African generations. Um, yeah, you are you are this descendants of uh, of of great and deep and profound and eternal people. How has Haji Gora Haji's writing influenced your own? <laughs> Haji gave me the sea. Um, Haji taught me that um, the sea has been in constant dialogue uh, with our humanity uh, as a collective and very specifically um, to us as East Africans. Uh, uh, Haji gave uh, a grammar uh, to the waters and to our lives of journeying. Um, and uh, and he was very important for me in, in turning around, giving me an angle for the story Dragonfly Sea, in that um, when I had approached him, I'd approached him because uh, one of the questions that was informing my, um, uh, uh, you know, the quest around Dragonfly Sea was, what does, the, what does China's uh, presence in Africa actually mean? Uh, for the ordinary, for the ordinary kind of human being. Um, uh, what does he mean for the intimate histories? I remember going to him first and saying, oh, you know, China, is, China has come. <laughs> China, and the Chinese are here, I said. 
and, and, and fallen victim to the little chicken lick and the sky is falling on Africa's head thing. Now the Chinese are here, uh, and of course they've come by the sea mostly, as as always. Uh, but what does it mean? What does it mean? I asked him, and and he he used to treat he used to call me his daughter as well. So we're sitting down and he's saying yes, and he's trying to look. He knows something is concerning me, but he doesn't understand what is it. Yes, and 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 so what? And so I said, but what does it mean? What that kind of what does it mean for our people? And he says, this is, this is the line. This is the line that turned for me the book around. He said, um, uh, what do you call it? What he says? Uh, no, uh, they, they have come. They have gone. They have come again. So what's new? And I remember that time the tide was also coming in. I, I, and I think I, when I'd gone, when I'd walked, when we'd gone, when I'd gone to his place, the tide was out. But now the tide was coming in. And there's this kind of incredible resonance of understanding that the histories of our worlds is, is like the tide. There's a coming in and going out of people. The instrumentalization or weaponization of human movement and exchange and encounter. In that moment, when he said it, it felt I felt so stupid. It is stupid to uh, what do you call it to um, pathologize that. It is the nature of our human beingness. The world of encounters. There's nothing new. And it, it, it was such a moment. There's nothing new about this flow of peoples. And then he reminded me, and then I was, you know, the, the signs are right there. In front of you, my favorite Chinese restaurant in Zanzibar is owned by a fourth generation Zanzibari of Chinese origin. Literally, there's, it's, there's nothing new. Under, literally, there's nothing new under the sun. And thinking, of course, okay. And there's just this incredible peace, understanding, oh, it's part of, just part of the cycle of history. And more importantly, part of the cycle of East African history. We've been a people who have been a portal to worlds. Um, and, and part of the rediscovery is to understand, uh, it's back to that question, what does it mean for us and as East Africans to be human in the world? Yes. It, and our answer does not necessarily mean the same answer as that which is offered elsewhere. Uh, and I'm so honored to have been given the opportunity to speak with you today. And I feel like there definitely is... Uh, blurring lines between you and flame trees. <laughs> also in the way that you speak of witnessing with such fire and such passion and of being a gateway through which we all can remember and reconnect and accept the tides, the movement, the human beingness. Um, so thank you for that. Oh. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for your questions as well. You have listened to my African reading list. The complete reading list can be found in the show notes. Interviewer in this episode was Nusisve Lise Bakwa. Music by Ibu Sisuku.